1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of James, chapter 5.
0: And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, more of the dogs came and licked the source. And by the way, I suspect that rich man probably took a tax write-off for those crumbs. But let's move on. <laughs> It came to pass that the, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now this gets into some geometry we've got to talk about. In the Old Testament, there's a term called Sheol, meaning the grave, or the abode of, it's, it's not just the grave in its physical sense, it's the abode of the dead. And you can, if you do a word study, you will quickly find that out. That's the, Sheol being the Hebrew of the Old Testament. The Greek term for the New Testament for essentially the same thing is Hades. Hades is not hell. It's sometimes translated hell. That's clumsiness. Hades is the Greek term for the abode of the dead. And from Luke 16, we get the impression that it has two compartments that are separated. The good guys and the bad guys. Over here we've got Abram in the, Abram's bosom and that's where the beggar ends up with Abraham. The rich man, for whatever reasons is in the other place now we learn a lot about this he's conscious not annihilated, he's conscious he's in torment he somehow knows or can see across this gulf between the two some people who make the little charts about this like to have that gulf between the two be the abuso, it may or may not be there's also a place, separate from what we've talked about called the abuso the abyss, the bottomless pit as it's sometimes translated we know where the bottomless pit is did you know that? There's only one place it can be. And to dramatize this, you have to remember the little children's riddle. You know, some campers set up camp, and they go 10 miles to the south, and they see bear tracks. And they follow the bear tracks 10 miles to the west, where they find the bear, shoot him, and they drag him 10 miles north back to the camp. question is, what color is the bear? has to be white, right? Because the only place you can go south, 10 miles west, and then north and back where you started is at the pole. Follow me? That's the idea. I'm giving you the short version. Okay. (laughs) Where is the only place that you can have a bottomless pit? Where? Center of the earth, exactly. Because from the center of the earth, every direction's up. There's no, there's, there's no bottom. If you're at that point, every direction's up, isn't it? Right? It's very interesting that Hades and the Abuso are always spoken of in the scripture as being geocentric. Now, that may be just a figure of speech, and many theologians would say that just a, you know is a figure of speech, and maybe it is. I don't think it is. I think it's real. The Gehenna, the lake of fire, is in the outer darkness. They're opposites geometrically. And, of course, to fill in the blanks here so you don't get confused, we believe that when Jesus, on the cross, when he was resurrected... He was the first fruits of a resurrection. Matthew 27, we have a strange allusion to many other graves open and men walking so forth. And that was, he was the first of a sheaf. It had to be a sheaf to fulfill the prophecy of, of the first fruits. But the point is, at that point, most of us infer that the good side of Hades is cleaned out. They're with him now. The others are waiting their final judgment. Okay? We're together? That's a view. That's where this is the, and most of this come, comes from here and some other passages. Verse 24. The uh, rich man sees uh, Lazarus in Abraham's wisdom. And verse 24, he says, He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I, have, I am tormented in this flame. Now, I think this probably is anthropomorphic because he's no longer physical. He's in a different dimensionality, but still, that's the analogy. He's in pain. And verse 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix, so that they who would pass from, uh, from here to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from there. In other words, you can't cross this gulf. It doesn't work. Maybe total different dimensionality. I don't know exactly what's going on. But anyway, verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, where I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You can almost hear a Jewish accent there, can't you? (laughs) And he said, Nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one even rose from the dead. Now you get the irony here. Because there was a different Lazarus, but Lazarus was raised from the dead. And what did they do about it? They plotted to kill him. That was a big problem, have Lazarus walking around after after that whole thing, you know, for Bethany and so on. And uh, they had to knock him off too. Very interesting. Uh, I really wonder if the rich man knew the name of Lazarus before this event. I wonder when he was at the door begging, if the rich man even countenanced him. I wonder if Jesus mentions his name here to Abraham. It's ironic. He mentions Lazarus' name. He doesn't ever mention the rich man's name. Verse six, continuing, James says, "Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not, re- and he does not resist you." You know the old expression, "The golden rule: He that has the gold rules." And one of the frightening things that we see in cultures for thousands of years, and we see it happening in America. America was founded to avoid these traditional injustices. The concept of due process. The concept of having the protection of the law. It's interesting that wealth and power control the due process, as it's called. As we look at the the trials, I won't mention the specific ones. You can fill in the blank. I don't want to get a lot of letters. There's a joke that they finally found Adolf Hitler. i got some good news and bad news. The good news is they finally caught Adolf Hitler. The bad news is they're going to try him in Los Angeles. (laughs) The obstruction of justice in the highest office of the land. Deuteronomy 17 deals with that. Exodus 18.21 asks the judges not to be greedy. Leviticus 19.15 for the judges not to be partial to the rich. Deuteronomy 19.16-21 not to tolerate perjury. And bribery was condemned by Isaiah. Thirty-three, fifteen, Micah, and chapter three and chapter seven. It goes on and on. And Amos condemned the judges that took bribes and fixed cases in Amos chapter five. On it goes. It's interesting that le- probably about a decade or less from the time that James wrote this epistle, the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian, the son of the emperor, and uh, for uh, the, the fifth, tenth, twelfth, and fifteenth Roman legions laid siege to Jerusalem. And after nine months of a bloody war, 1,350,000 people, men, women, and children murdered, that these rich ones that he was talking about lost their riches and probably their lives. It's interesting that you and I live in a parallel. We live in a very prosperous land where we take prosperity for granted. And yet it's not very, very hard to take a hard objective look at our distant horizon and realize that there may be a very painful parallel. There may be turbulence and and problems forthcoming. And if our heart is set upon things and prosperity and wealth, which are ephemeral, of course, rather than the Lord, that can be discouraging. And yet, if you understand the scenario that's unfolding, boy, it's the most exciting time to be alive in human history. It depends where your heart is, whether your heart is on things or on the Lord climaxing His promises. Now, there's another aspect to all of this that I don't think you'll find in a Bible study, but I have to throw it in here. As most of you know, I spent three decades in deals, investments, um, doing mergers and acquisitions, what have you. There is a cost that most people never derive from their accountants. But the smart guys are very sensitive to it. And I can remember being in a situation... I was blessed with the opportunity to participate in a situation with Bill Simon, former Secretary of Treasury. He was uh, in private uh, life, and, and he asked me to join this board of a company we were trying to turn around. One of the things that always... His major yardstick when we were dealing with things was what he called the opportunity cost. It isn't the cost-benefit of this particular possibility. Is okay... What are the alternatives and what could they yield? In other words, if you go plan A, you might make a million dollars, but the effort and energy and time it might take, in contrast to plan B, where you might make $10 million. The $9 million difference is the cost of going on plan A. In other words, the cost of missing the other opportunity. To someone who is a venture capitalist... One of the things you can rarely quantify it in dollars, but one of the things you're very conscious of, it isn't just whether a particular proposition is profitable. Is it as profitable as spending our energy on an alternative situation? You can work, spend a year of real hard work developing a one million dollar project, and it probably takes you no more work over here to build a twenty million dollar project. Follow me. There's a there's a cost to wherever you 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 only have today tomorrow today's history there's an opportunity cost today you understand what I'm saying and that's another aspect here the opportunity of an alternative allocation of time effort resources whatever should be considered Ephesians 5:16 speaks of redeeming the time right we always use that expression redeeming the time and it carries that idea and uh, we must work while it is day for the night is coming Jesus tells us in John chapter 9 verse 4 part of of what should move us is a sense of urgency, not panic or anxiety, but a sense of urgency to make every day count. If we have resources to allocate, it's always important to create alternatives. You go to the local hardware store and there's a particular tool that really would make neat for the family workshop. The question isn't whether that tool is a good idea or not. It's a question of making a list of alternatives. Is that the place you really want to spend your money on that one versus this one or something totally different. Part of any analysis is analysis of the alternatives. And as you uh, allocate your time or your dollars, is the Lord in it? Are the priorities that are being applied to your resources as a steward the priorities that God would approve? Have you entered in those situations prayerfully? Those are all issues. I'm reminded, uh, how many of you seen saw the movie Schindler's List? Huh? Do you remember the touching scene near the end of the movie where it hits him for lack of a better term Schindler's regret he realized the ring on his finger or the bat, that that could have saved another life what came home to him was the long-term implications of his near-term actions i'm sure he shed tears as he thought about the wasteful years And maybe not the naive early years where he just didn't realize what's going on, but as time went on and he appreciated the predicament that he was facing, and as he began to plan to try to save some of his employees, and as that unfolds, uh, with a gradually increasing desperation, boy, can you imagine? Put yourself in his shoes near the end. When, okay, what's done is done, it's time to move on. And he realizes that by being just a little more committed, he could have saved just a... We sort of sit back and say, wow, look what you did accomplish. But then again, his point of view is what he might have had he been a little more focused, a little more stewardsman like Anyway, it's good to have things that money can buy, but only if you already have the things money can't buy. And that comes first. What good is a million-dollar house if you have no home? What good is a million-dollar diamond ring if you have no love? Or as so one person's asked the question, are we buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like? <laughs> what we keep, we lose. What we give to God, we not only keep, but get interest on it. That's a good deal. A famous preacher who is known for his long sermons was giving a charity, uh, you know, annual charity appeal. He was asked not to speak too long for fear of losing the audience. So he he read this text from Proverbs nineteen seventeen: "He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth to the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again." And the sermon was: "If you like the terms, then put down your money." <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> This whole epistle of what I like to call the Epistle of Yaakov to the Twelve Tribes, of course, is a epistle about spiritual maturity. He's speaking to Christians, and they were largely Jewish at the time he wrote this. And the epistle is a a spiritual maturity is essentially about patience. He took after the, the money guys here in terms of their their failure to really appreciate the true long-term perspective. But now he's going to get into patience more specifically in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. He's using the farmer as an analogy. The farmer understands patience. He knows he's got to prepare the ground. He plants the seed. Nothing he can do can rush the seed. He knows he's just got to take care of it, and ultimately... And by the way, when he says the, the early and latter rain, remember the year started in the fall. So the early rain is in the fall. The latter rain is in the spring. We, we think, see, our, our calendar is different than the one they're used to. But he's using the agrarian model here, and, and the farmer has patience because he knows ultimately in the spring the, the, little, the, the buds will come up, and they'll grow, and there'll be crops, and there'll be fruit. And he knows that he can't rush the fruit. He knows the fruit will be provided if he's just patient and diligent. He doesn't make the fruit. God does. But his job is to be diligent and prepare and do his job. And God will provide the increase and uh, provide for him. And so he's using that here. And I think the secret to um, what I call strategic patience is to keep focused on the second coming of Christ, to get right at it. The analogy is the farmer waiting for the, you know, uh, the fruit. In, in his case, he has the advantage. In his case, it's scheduled. He knows so many months if he's patient Come, And we don't know when the Lord's coming. could ne- come tomorrow, next week, whatever. That's an advantage. But everything we do, everything we do, should have as a yardstick our blessed hope, what Titus calls our blessed hope. Now, there are two words for patience in the scripture. One really means long-suffering, and the other one really is endurance. And some scholars, Greek scholars, believe the long-suffering refers to patience with respect to people. And endurance, it refers to patience with respect to circumstances. But you have to understand, Greek probably has the largest vocabulary of any language ever on the planet Earth. It's got a huge vocabulary. It's very precise. And some of these subtleties uh, may be appropriate. It's interesting that David also was troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. We might turn to Psalm 37. I'll let you pick up on verse 35. David says, I have seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but could not be found." It's interesting, the answer to this really is um, verse 7. There is rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. It's amazing. The same, Habakkuk in the Old Testament has the same burden. Why do the wicked prosper? And uh, I encourage you to, to, uh, to deal with it. If you have an eschatology that's a pre-trib point of view, which is the one I happen to share, and that's not a problem. Right? If there's some people here that are post-trib, but it's not a problem. We'll explain it to you on the way up. It's not an issue. Um, but there is a difference in the walk. Barnhouse used to kid Walter Martin when he came to work. He'd say, the sad day, sad day, Jesus can't come back today. Because he knew that Walter leaned to a post-trib view. And, and uh, that implies there's seven years of history that has to precede the second coming which is, we think, contrary to Scripture, clearly Christ taught us the New Testament teaches the doctrine of eminence. He could come at any moment. And uh, that's why we believe there's a very big distinction between the rapture and the second coming. He comes back twice, once for the church, once for Israel. But the point is, the clear teaching of the New Testament, that he can come at any moment, is one of the most galvanizing aspects of the Scripture. You and I have the privilege... Uh, To live our lives in a moment-by-moment expectancy. Boy, does that make decisions easier. That makes decisions easier. Big danger to allow yourself to think, "Gee, I think it's going to be a few years off." For in such a day, hours ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Anyway, the Christian, of course, is analogous here to a farmer, sensitive to the seasons, the sowing, watering, so forth. Verse eight: Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. James also points to the eminence of Jesus' return as a motivator for their actions. And of course, the secret to patience of the farmer is that the harvest he's anticipating is worth waiting for. And the secret you and I have is that our harvest is also worth waiting for. Verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. When you're impatient with people, that betrays an impatience with God. And you don't want to be impatient with God. <laughs> We're supposed to put our sickles in for the harvest. I don't know why Christians use their sickles on each other all the time. But let's move on verse 10. Now he's going to, uh, James is going to shift to the prophets. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for the example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Jesus also used the example of the prophets as an example of victory over persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, 11, and 12, he deals, he points to the persecution of the prophets. You and I, in Second Timothy 3, among other places, are promised persecution. The Lord was obedient. What did it lead to him? To the cross. It led him to the cross. You can go through example after example. Elijah announced to wicked King Ahab that there would be a drought for three and a half years. And he had to suffer that drought too. Now he got fed by ravens and things, but the point is we'll talk a little bit more about it. James is going to bring this up a little later. But it's interesting that the prophets also suffered not just at the hands of the unbelievers, but also the believers. They suffered at the hands of believers too. So why are we surprised? Jeremiah was arrested as a traitor and thrown uh, into an abandoned well to die. And that was by his own people. Ezekiel and Daniel also had their share of hardships, but God, of course, delivered them. The New Testament presents the persecution of the prophets as proverbial. And I have a list of 11 examples of this that I'll spare you, but we'll just take one because it's a sample. In Hebrews 11... Turn to the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 11. Grab a couple of a quick glimpse there. After going through uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, he gets to verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, famine uh, became valiant in in flight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Uh, Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, and moreover bonds and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn asunder they were tested were slain without the sword i mean with the sword they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute afflicted tormented of whom the world was not worthy they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth and these all having received witness through faith received not the promise God having provided something better thing for us that they without us should not made perfect. In other words, that's a whole other point there. I'll go on. Verse 11 of James. James then Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful, and of tender mercy. Why do people who proclaim the Lord endure difficult trials? Well, one suggestion is so that their lives can back up their messages. That's what God's interested in. Enduring counts. And I think many obscure heroes will receive the rewards, and his rewards he brings with them. And one way we get a feeling for this is to spend more time in the Bible, because it's interesting how the Bible, in the New Testament and Old, uses these this history, these narratives, as examples for our learning. And it's interesting, too, <laughs> the Lord ministered to me, you know, Job had three friends, <laughs> With friends like that, you don't need enemies, you know. As I read Job, I, I keep wondering if these guys, these three friends, uh, published newsletters or had websites, you know. I, I really wonder. And, of course, the friends were wrong, and God took up the cause. Uh, he had no cause against jo- Job, and God rebuked his friends, ultimately, for telling that about uh, Job. What Job. What we have that Job didn't have is the perspective. We are treated, in chapter 1, to the dialogue between Satan and God. So as we watch the narrative, we know what's going on. Job didn't have the benefit of that discussion. He just trusted God. Mm, Boy. And, of course, God never wastes the suffering of his saints. Job himself met God even in a deeper way, as he describes in chapter 42. The impatient Christian is a weapon in Satan's hands. And Moses' impatience robbed him of his opportunity to enter the promised land. And Abraham's impatience led to the birth of Ishmael. And look what's derived from that. Peter's impatience in the garden almost made him a murderer. When Jesus healed the ear of the high priest's servant, he was saving Peter's life. Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient for thee, and so forth. See, so you and I are not a robot caught in the jaws of fate. We're a child of God and uh, we're part of his profound and wonderful plan. It's up to us to be To to trust him. That's really all he wants to do is to trust us. Now from here, uh, James starts talking about straight talk. As I think you all recognize by reading any daily paper that honesty is becoming a very rare commodity in our country. Perjury under solemn oath is epidemic. In our courts, in the solemn vows of marriage, and the assertions of the highest office of the land. Romans 3.13 says their tongues practice deceit. And uh, we know from Leviticus 19.12 and Numbers 32 and Deuteronomy 23.21 that breaking vows is forbidden. The scripture never asks you to take a vow, but if you take it, it expects you to keep it. And that's very, very clear in the Torah and elsewhere. Verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device.